our scripture reading this morning then from the, uh, the first reading it's from the New Testament uh, turning to first Timothy beginning with verse 18 where Paul gives Timothy a charge and we will be reading through verse 7 of the second chapter. So 1 Timothy chapter 1, let us hear the word of God. This charge I have entrusted to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them you may wage good warfare, holding faith and a good conscience. By rejecting this, some have made shipwreck of their faith among whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. First of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving be made for all people, for kings, and for all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good, and it is pleasing in the sight of God, our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to knowledge of the truth. For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. For this I was appointed a preacher and an apostle, I am telling the truth, I am not lying, a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. Thus far, we read from 1 Timothy, the last portion of chapter 1 and the first portion of chapter 2. May God indeed apply this portion of his word to us. And I would ask that you turn with me to Numbers chapter 2, the book of Numbers, the second chapter. I don't know if anyone remembers, so in case you don't, I'll remind you. The last time I was here, we talked about the presence of God in the midst of his people, as we saw that in terms of God in the end of Exodus moving into the camp of the Israelites, Uh, and being present in the Holy of Holies in the tabernacle. I want to take that concept one step further this morning and look at the camp itself and how that relationship of God present relates to all of the people who were in the camp of Israel. And thus reading from Numbers chapter 2. Now this is a bit of an interesting chapter to read. It might uh, sound a little bit redundant to you because we're going to be going over a lot of the organization and and numbers and and so on at camp, but it sets the context for what we want to look at this morning in terms of God's presence, effective with God's people as, as God's people, and we see that as a picture of the church of Jesus Christ. So, Numbers chapter 2. The word of God. The Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron, saying, The people of Israel shall camp, each by his own standard, with the banners of their fathers' houses. They shall camp facing the tent of meeting on every side. Those of 
to camp on the east side toward the sunrise shall be of the standard of the camp of Judah. By their companions, the chief of the people of Judah being Neshon, and the son Himadab, his company is listed being 74,600. Those to camp next to him shall be the tribe of Issachar, the chief of the people of Issachar being Nethiel, the son of Zuar. His company is listed being 54,400. Then the tribe of Sebulon, the chief of the people of Sebulon being Eliab, the son of Helon. His company is listed being 57,400. All, all those listed of the camp of Judah by their companies were 186,400. They shall set their first, they shall set out first on the march. On the south side shall be the standard of the camp of Reuben by their companies. The chief of the people of Reuben being Elzur, the son of Shedadur, his company as listed being 46,500. And those to camp next to him shall be the tribe of Simeon, the chief of the people of Simeon being Shelmiel, the son of Shurishaddai. His company is listed being 59,300. Then the tribe of Gad, the chief of the people of Gad being Elisaph, the son of Reel. This company, his company is listed being 45,650. All those listed of the camp of Reuben by their companies were 151,450. They shall set out second. Then the tent of meeting shall set out with the camp of the Levites in the midst of the camp. As they camp, so shall they set out, each in position, standard by standard. On the west side shall be the standard of camp of Ephraim by their companies, the chief of the people of Ephraim being Elishema, the son of Amahud, his company as listed being 40,500. And next to him shall be the tribe of Manasseh, the chief of the people of Manasseh being Gamaliel, the son of Petazur, his company is listed being 32,200. Then the tribe of Benjamin, the chief of the people of Benjamin, being Abidan, the son of Gideoni, his company is as listed being 35,400. All those listed of the camp of Ephraim by their companies were 108,100. They shall set out third on the march. On the north side shall be the standard of the camp of Dan by their companies, the chief of the people of Dan being Ahizur, the son of Amashuradai, his company as being 62,700. And those who camp next to him shall be the tribe of Asher, the chief of the people of Asher being uh, Pejiel, the son of Akron, his company as listed being 41,500. Then the people of Naphtali, the chief of the people of Naphtali being Ahirah, the son of Enid. His company as listed being 53,400. All those listed at the camp of Dan were 157,600. They shall set out last, standard by standard. These are the people of Israel, as listed by their father's houses. All those listed in the camps by their companies were 603,000. 550. But the Levites were not listed among the people of Israel, as the Lord commanded Moses. 
Thus did the people of Israel according to all that the Lord commanded Moses. So they camped by their standards, and so they set out, each one in his clan, according to his father's house. I'm not totally sure that I pronounce all of those names correctly, but then I figured no one else would know any difference anyway, so... And thus far, the reading then of God's Word. The message of the Gospel, the message of God contained in this book, the Scriptures, is of course that God has in eternity determined to save a people from sin and to bring them out of darkness unto himself, and that he has sent his Son, Jesus Christ, And we know that he has specifically given every one of those to the Lord for that work of redemption. And we know that the Lord tells us that he has accomplished that work. So all those who are God's people have a Savior. And of course, you need to know that Savior. You need to personally trust and place your hope in Jesus Christ for that salvation. But what has happened very often, or very much so, in modern Christianity and what we call evangelicalism is that we have so seared in on that personal relationship, does the individual know their Savior, that we've moved away from the importance of the church. And we've come to the point today where either the church is kind of not that important, it's kind of a nice thing, it would be nice for once in a while, when it doesn't get in the way of anything else, uh, or even not at all, except that what's important that one personally knows the Lord. That is contrary to Scripture. What we must ask, and what our life, the life of the believer is based on, And then particularly the question that we all know, what is your only comfort in life and in death? How can that question be answered? Is it only that you personally know the Lord? Does the scripture give us more than that? We can look at the world around us. We hear about shootings and children being shot up in the school and we hear about pandemics and we hear about earthquakes and hurricanes, and we wonder about this world. In my last, as I said, in my last message here, (coughs) we talked about God having moved into the midst of his people by means of the tabernacle. We want to consider this morning what that really means for the people of God. Take that a step further, starting then, first of all, with essentially what we read in descriptive terms from this chapter, and that is the camp of Israel. You know, there may actually be some who find reading a chapter such as this as being uh, interesting, And I suspect that you're probably wondering, why is he reading about all of these names we can't pronounce and all of these numbers? What are they really 
mean for us today? Well, first of all, Numbers is also the Word of God. It is also God's Gospel, the message of redemption. But the context which is said here is really quite important to understand. That this is the people of God, as God who made covenant with Abraham, made promise to Adam and Eve, made covenant with Abraham, brought them out of Egypt from slavery, brought them on himself. And so we have this outward, very outward sort of uh, uh, picture of the kingdom of God, ultimately a picture of the kingdom of Christ. And so, and, and yet is in a very consecrated way. It is in the Old Testament when everything is given to us in an outward sort of way, which we now in the New Testament that Christ has said, the day shall come and has come, that uh, we worship the Lord in spirit and in truth. And so as we examine this, there is a great deal which we can learn and apply to be made for what it means to be part of the church of Jesus Christ. Today, keep in mind that the Old Covenant God deals with his people, as I indicated, in a very outward sort of manner. And the reality for us today is a spiritual inner reality. But the reality is the same. And the overwhelming picture of that organization, which is on the move, as God established them and put them into place and told them how to march and who is the leader and so on, their purpose is to move to conquer the land of Israel. There are 603, 550 men of war, not counting the Levites or the families, Conservative math suggests that there was a campground, if you can imagine, of anywhere from four to six million people. Must have been some kind of campground. I want to note in particular this morning the aspect of organization. And yet understand that it is part of the greater picture of Israel. So you had the tabernacle in the middle, you had the Levites who took care of the tabernacle, camped around it, and then you had each of the twelve tribes lined up, first of all, with their armies, and then the people behind that, and going all the way around the picture of the tabernacle. And they are moving towards the conquering and inheriting of the promised land. So keep in mind that God is revealing his plan of redemption in this Old Testament setting as we look at this camp. So we've got the tabernacle in the middle. We've got the place where God is in his presence in the Holy of Holies. What does that have to do with the millions of people around Tabernacle. Keep in mind that the tabernacle represents, as I said, the presence of God, and therefore it represents the grace of God. It is only because God is a gracious God, and through all of the details of the tabernacle, where sacrifice takes place, where the offerings are brought, 
where on the Day of Atonement, once a year, the blood is brought very, even into the Holy of Holies and sprinkled on the mercy seat, which is the idea of covering for our sins, so that it represents the grace of God, that God would be in the midst of his people. The key verse that we want to look at is verse 2 of Numbers chapter 2. And so keep in mind, that's why I read the whole chapter, then in that context, this verse. The people of Israel shall camp, each by his own standard, with the banners of their father's houses. They shall camp facing the tent of meeting on every side. So it says that they shall camp by his own standard, and then it says something about next to the banner of each of their houses. So there are two things that are identified here. There is what we would call today a flag. We identify a country, a nation, by its flag. We also have an emblem. Probably gets fairly close to what a terminology that uh, we are used to today for every company and for every organization and so on, and that is everybody has their own logo, right? It identifies who they are. So each tribe had its own identity by means of a flag and an emblem. And by means of that, the tribe was united together under their flag. And being camped under their flag, united all of the members, even though the flag was up in front and the soldiers were up in front, but way back, probably much further than anyone could ever see, they knew that they were united because they knew that their flag was there and their emblem was there. It also demonstrates why they are there. It is connection to the covenant made with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob because it's connected to the patriarchs as one of the sons of Jacob. You see, the identity is much more than merely uh, sort of a family tree, sort of saying, well, I'm of this tribe, and I'm of that tribe, etc. It places them in the covenant of grace. Because there is a further statement. It says, they shall camp facing the tent of being on every side. It's a difficult Hebrew sentence here, and you will see if you read from different translations, there are uh, fairly differing statements made here. Ultimately, what it means is that by means of that flag, that standard, which was pointing to the tabernacle, facing the tent of meeting. And the idea is there is a connection. That's where God is at in the Holy of Holies. His presence is personally there in the Holy of Holies. And by means of that flag pointed at that tabernacle, even the person miles back, because think of six million people or even four million people, uh, the, the person camped in the back end of that camp very likely could not see 
the tabernacle. And though the general and the army up in front could actually literally look, but by means of that flag, the one in the back knew that they were connected to God because their standard, which identified them as one of the sons of Abraham that God made covenant with, is connected to God. They are a part of identity as the special people of God with the privilege of being connected to God and under the protection of God. Even though God was in the Holy of Holies, in that Old Testament situation in which sin had not yet been covered, in the inner room of the tabernacle, the whole camp by that, by virtue of their standards pointing to the Holy of Holies, was connected and was under the protection and under the benefits of that covenant God who came to his people. Now, as I indicated, this is a microcosm. This is an outward picture of a very unreal, but a very consecrated sort of reality of life. And but it is a picture of the real spiritual reality of God's people. As I quoted earlier when Jesus said in the Samaritan woman at the well, the hour is coming and now is when true worshipers will worship the Father and Spirit and truth. That outward reality of connection is now a spiritual truth. Today, you know that God is in you are connected to him because the Holy Spirit is in your heart. You do not need a flag today. You do not need to live within eyesight of the church. You do not, uh, you, but you do need to be part of the church. And being a part of the church means something. You are under that protection and that grace and benefits of the covenant God. The overall picture that we have here of detailed organization in an army, you know, I, I often wonder what that was really like in that camp. How did they take care of all of their food and all of their, uh, uh, all of their needs and all of their water and so on? It is an amazing thing. It is, of course, only by the grace of God. It is a detailed organization, and yet it is a picture of the kingdom of Christ. Jesus said to Peter in Matthew 16, when Peter confessed, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God, he said, on this rock, that is, on this confession, I will build my church, and the gates of Hades, or the gates of hell, shall not be able to prevail against it. Again, that is a kingdom language. While we do not have a campground today, with a flag and an army, we do not go to war with the sword, but we are not just individuals claiming to belong to Jesus because we each have come in our own special way to know him in our hearts. We are the people of God. We are called by Peter to be a royal priest and a holy nation. We do have a sword. It is the scriptures, the two-edged sword. And we do have a war. We do have a path to follow. We do have enemies to deal with. And we are in that war under the protection of the covenant God. The picture of the Holy Spirit 
would have you see in this microcosm, this outward picture, now in the New Testament, is that you are called to be a part of this kingdom. To you is the protection of the presence of God in the same way that it was to the children of Israel traveling through the wilderness. Literally confessing publicly before the elders. When you think about church membership, one of the things I've said that often are, are, are forgotten or even disdained by many places today. But when you stand up and say, I belong to Jesus, and you say that in front of others, and others receive you and gather their hands around you, and you say that before the elders, as, as Jesus told the elders in Matthew 16 and 18, that they hold the keys of the kingdom. You know, we kind of often have it, uh, just as an, a side note here, uh, often the statement is backwards. People talk, well, I've accepted Jesus. The question is, has Jesus accepted you? And that's by virtue of your confession. And it's a public confession. And when you are formally a part of the church and having confessed before God and witness, you are literally planting your flag, indicating that your connection to Christ and all that goes with that, you are living under the presence of God. Finally, what does all of this have to do with the church today? already given some indications. The people of God here in Numbers are in the wilderness. They are about to march through the desert. It's not an easy march. Virtually there are no provisions. There are hostile people who will seek to destroy them. They are seeking to go into the kingdom of Satan and dispossess the Canaanites of the land. And that connection, then, I also want to point your attention to verse 17. It says, And then the tent of meeting shall set out with the camp of the Levites in the midst of the camp. As they camp, so shall they set out each in position, standard by standard. The people of God, in the presence of God, the tabernacle in the midst guarantees the protection of God. But notice, God did not say, don't worry about the hostile environment. Don't worry about shootings. Don't worry about pandemics. Don't worry about the pagan world around you. In fact, just do your own thing, whatever seems good to you, and I will protect you. It's not what God said at all. God called them to have an army. They didn't just haphazardly walk through the desert towards the land of Israel. They had an army, and that army was put to work. That army fought battles. But they connected also together. So our survival today is not by means of the sword or by a nation. Sometimes you wonder, well, what's going to happen to Christianity? Because look at our nation. It's not dependent on our nation. It's dependent upon the kingdom of Christ. Our sword is the word of God. Our strength is the Holy Spirit. But the picture of protection, the picture of moving through the wilderness is just as real. That is the first 
great thing that you should know it here. But then remember, even with all that I have said, it took them 40 years to get there, and in fact, none of them who were alive here actually made it. They died in unbelief in the wilderness, with the exception of Caleb and Joshua. It seems as though God failed them, but he did not. Because the covenant community did enter into the promised land. They did conquer the land of Canaan. Still a picture of God with his people. Claiming Christ as your Savior, planting your flag, is to understand that you are marching with God. You're not just along for the ride. Yes, there will be attacks. There will be disbelief. There will be struggles, tremendous struggles. But the Lord, as Christ said to Peter, the gates of hell cannot stop us. We walk just as the children of Israel eventually walked into the promised land. We are today called upon to walk right through the gates and into the midst of the kingdom of Satan and rescue people from there and bring them out and give them the gospel. And we know that Christ is victorious. You are part of an army. An army which marches forward in the midst of a hostile and evil world. An army which meets every hostile situation and defeats it ultimately. And the reason that we can say that even when things look very dire out there in the world is because God and his presence is in the midst of his people. And so with the line of sight on the tabernacle, with your eyes on Christ, let us remember again what that tabernacle represents. It's literally the presence of Christ. By means of the tabernacle, the work of the priests, they did not move, they did not breathe without their eyes on the tabernacle, where God is present, which is to say their eyes were on Christ. In the midst of the great and comforting picture, there is a sober warning. The picture of the camp at Mount Sinai is still the picture of the church struggling. In theology, we speak of the church today as the church militant. That is the church at war. War with the sin in our own hearts. War with the world around us. War with the devil. But the hope of the gospel is not just some feel-good situation. It is not just, I in my own way have found my Savior. It is the work of the kingdom of Christ. You see, you are not called by God to be timid and hide behind a bunker. You are not called to attempt in some way to make your own way in this world. Your protection is not... Well, if we make sure that we always do everything the way we've always done it, never change anything, never going to be okay. You are called to plant your flag with God's people, to march with God towards the victory of his kingdom. You are called to keep your eyes on Christ. Because he is with you. His presence will not fail you. His direction for life with you will lead you to a true life ultimately, 
the promised land. Let us pray. Oh God and Father, how grateful we are that we can plant our flag, that we can have our eyes on you in our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, and that we do so through the church of Jesus Christ. May you bless the church, may you keep it, and may you protect it, and may it indeed be victorious. In Jesus' name we do pray. Amen.